been watching a lot of Daniel Tiger in my house these days. It's a show for little kids, a cartoon spinoff of Mr. Rogers. And most of the time, the episodes are about Daniel having to deal with something difficult and learning to navigate those challenges more effectively. You know, like he's frustrated he has to go to the post office instead of play with his toys, or he's bummed out that his friend plans to hang out with his brother so he can't play with Daniel. His friend, by the way, is a literal prince, and he's always wearing his crown, which strikes me as elitist, but <laughs> whatever. Daniel's always mad or sad or frustrated, and sometimes, honestly, I'm like, Daniel, you gotta just get over it. But I get it. It's a good kid's show, and my daughter loves it. And I was thinking there might be room for a grown-up spinoff, where, like, Daniel's dad is navigating political polarization at work. H hear, hear me out. Talking politics can be rough. We've always got one chunk of our brain taking stock of whose political views align with ours and whose don't. And when someone says the words Trump, Biden, or brutal assault on reproductive rights, we tense up. Oh no, what do I say? Are you gonna be cool with me thinking something different? Am I gonna be cool with you thinking something different? Or as Daniel Tiger would say, I feel worried. And if this were a Daniel Tiger spinoff, some wise parent or teacher would interject with a short, punchy ditty about how to cope. Something like, I really did think about writing a little song and singing it just there, but then I remembered, I don't write songs and I can't sing them. Stay in your lane, Luttrell. <laughs> the point is, political discussion strikes me as the same sort of generally innocuous but still scary experience that Daniel Tiger often faces. Instead of feeling some trepidation about trying a bell pepper or wearing a new sweater, we're talking about the challenges of talking politics with someone who thinks differently, and who might know a lot more than you do on that subject. And while I don't have a simple song to help you, I do know someone who understands this dilemma really well. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell, and this week I'm excited to share my conversation with Taylor Carlson. She's an associate professor of political science at Washington University in St. Louis. She does a bunch of interesting work, but I was most interested in talking with her about a book she published with Jamie Settle last year. It's called What Goes Without Saying, Navigating Political Discussion in America. In it, they report their findings from a variety of surveys and experiments and organize them into a four-step model of political discussion. I found it really compelling, and it was helping me think more clearly about some work my lab's been doing. So I talked to Taylor about how she got interested in this area, how the book makes sense of how people approach talking politics with others, and what the future holds. We jump in right as I'm gushing to Taylor about the book. interested in this area and this book just was like you both just so cleanly packaged all this stuff together <laughs> in a really coherent framework that I was like oh like this is what I needed like <laughs> I needed a package that puts all these things in order so anyhow just kudos on this <laughs> strikes oh, me as you. kind of a monumental writing project but but you both oh, pulled it off thank you thank you so much yeah it's uh that's so nice to hear. the The project is is so meaningful to us. I think because, I mean, it's been it was almost a decade of of work, um, start to finish. But I mean, just we both grew so much 
professionally throughout the project. I started as I was an undergrad when we started working on this. And then, um, and like, so parts of it are my undergraduate honors thesis, parts of it are things that um, uh, Jamie and I worked on together when she was my advisor. And then, you know, I went to grad school, she went up for tenure. And so we kind of have always been working on this throughout these different career stages where we were also kind of working on our own thing. Um, but so it's just, I mean, we've grown to be very close colleagues, very close friends. And so the book is just, is really meaningful to us uh, in, in addition to sort of thinking about what we think it does for the field. So it, it just, it really means a lot to us to hear this this positive reaction. You know, it, it's it's one thing to kind of put something out into the world and, you know, hope that it is helpful to people, but it's another when it has this sort of deeper uh, connection to it, just because it, it represents so much of um, why we do what we do. Um, I was wondering about that. I just, so I, I just capped off. I finally finished the last chapter of it, uh, this morning and just, I figure, Oh, it, this is the conclusion chapter. Like this will be a good refresher for me before I actually yeah. talk to you. Um, I also and there, just reread the conclusion. <laughs> <chapter>. <laughs> the, uh, the, there was a comment that was made about like, uh, Oh, the 2020 election, was like not even a glimmer in your eye when you started this this work. And I thought, well, God, how long ago <laughs> did this begin? And so, yeah, to, to know that it goes back that deep. And then in looking at kind of the trajectory of the stuff that you've done, like it all circles around this. So this does kind of feel like a capstone to that yeah. kind of first wave of stuff that, that you had been doing. Exactly. And so I guess I'm curious, why do you do it? <laughs> you were an undergrad and you were interested in this. What is it about political discussion that that makes you want to know more? Thank you. That's a great question. So I think for me, I'm I'm interested in different parts of discussion, but for this book in particular, what really got me interested in it was this idea of conformity. So that was my sort of my entry or entrance into um, really uh, political behavior research in general. But I, it, there were sort of two things. So one was I was taking um, a social psychology class and learned about the Ash experiments and thought that was super interesting. And then at the same time, I was noticing in my political science courses that any of our class discussions tended to only represent one side of the story. It was only students who, um, it was really only Democrats who were speaking up in class. And there were students in class who I knew were involved in college Republicans, but were saying things that sounded awfully liberal in class. And I just thought to myself, that is not what I would have expected you to say. Um, and not what I have heard you say in other um, social contexts. And this struck me as something that was not only really interesting that you have some of the most politically engaged and active people on campus who are expressing different opinions in class than they are, you know, perhaps even when they're knocking on doors trying to mobilize voters, right, as they're doing their work for um, college Republicans. And um, it just, it really got me thinking about, you know, was this the ash experiments happening in real life, but in a political context? And I started, I was just really troubled by this because it, it was very different from what I had seen um, in high school classroom debates where conversations were much more mixed um, and very heated and intense, but, um, but, but powerful, I think, because you got to hear both perspectives. And it just seemed like, such a shame to our learning experience to not hear both sides of a story, but also just a terrible situation for students to feel so uncomfortable that they can't express 
what they really think in, in a classroom setting. So that kind of really motivated my honors project, which um, is the political, chameleon, political chameleons experiment in the book. And then we have a, an article on this as well, where I brought students into the lab. I, I essentially did the ash experiments. Um, and, uh, uh, but you know, I brought in Confederates and had them um, pretend to disagree uh, with, the, um, with the real participants and uh, look to see if people actually would conform on their political views and found that more often than not they did. Um, and so that was kind of the, the transition um, into this uh, sort of more through an academic lens. But I also think that, you know, just personal experiences growing up having political discussions with my grandparents, with my parents in high school, just political discussion, I think for me has always been part of um, the day-to-day -day experience, whether it's around the Thanksgiving dinner table or um, or just other family gatherings. And I, I think that, that myself included, that you can go from being so worked up to, um, to then, while having this political discussion, to then having, you know, a perfectly lovely meal or sometimes not. I, I just think, I just think that political discussion is one of those things that is a way that we engage with the political system without necessarily trying, and it is sometimes forced upon us. And that to me is really is really powerful in sort of thinking about political engagement and political participation. Um, and then you can throw in social media and it takes everything to a whole new level. So what I think it, it might be worth kind of giving folks an insight into what this framework is <laughs> that, that you've all put out in the world. Sure. Um, and, and one of the things to me, kind of as you were describing the experience of sitting in a classroom and seeing people sort of not be their authentic selves <laughs> in conversation is to me, one of the most interesting aspects of how these things play out is the the distinction between our lay theories about what's going to happen in these conversations and the realities of what happened in these conversations. And that seems like so much of it is like, I'm, I'm not just like thrust into this experience. I'm being choosy and I'm like sort of going down a decision tree of like, well, maybe I will have this conversation. If I do, how will I act in it? What are they going to think of me? Um, and so to maybe set the groundwork, you outline a handful of motivations that guide the way people engage in these situations, right? Like, what, what do I want out of these social experiences? And, and those are going to guide whether or not I even participate in them. So could you give us an overview of these three kind of core goals that people approach these things with? Sure. Yep. So, um, so we argue, and, and really this is borrowing from, um, from psychologists for the most part, um, uh, so we argue that all of the decisions that we're going to make throughout this, this 4D framework, um, as we're thinking about how to navigate a political discussion are driven by the, the triple A type typology. So, um, accuracy, affiliation, and affirmation. By accuracy, we mean that people want to be right. Uh, no one wants to be wrong. And so we could be approaching these conversations or choosing what to say in the conversation because we don't want to appear wrong. Um, so this is a, a space where uh, conformity in particular could could come up, right? So if I don't, if you ask me, you know, what's your opinion about the, um, about whether we should raise taxes or not, or maybe it's a more complex issue. 
if I don't really, if I'm not confident in what my opinion is, or I'm not confident in my knowledge on the topic, I might just go along with the group because I don't want to appear wrong, right? Or if they seem to know more than me, I don't want to be backed into a corner where I have to sort of um, kind of make things up or reveal how little I know. And so this accuracy motivation um, can drive uh, a lot of behaviors uh, in political discussion. But that's that's sort of the, the first point is we don't like to be wrong. And so we're motivated to be accurate. The second is affirmation. So we like to feel good about ourselves. We're motivated to try to maintain a positive self-concept, maintain our self-esteem. Um, and so this one is a little bit trickier to pin down in um, a, in the political discussion context because it's often really closely related to the, to the other two, I think. Um, but we think about affirmation as um, sort of things like if you kind of saying true to yourself to some extent. So if you, you know, really want to, if you feel really strongly about a particular issue, you might value the opportunity to express that opinion to other people or to affirm what you believed to be true, um, to sort of just uh, continue to develop your own political identity, your own political views, and sort of use discussion as a tool to accomplish that. Um, and then uh, affiliation is the one that we are most interested in in this book. We're most interested in this, I think, overlooked affiliation consideration, which suggests that we are motivated to affiliate with others. Um, and build these social relationships. And so we want to bond with others. We want to connect with others. Um, and political discussion is inherently social. Um, and so we are going to be driven in some way to try to use that discussion experience to either strengthen an existing relationship or perhaps more often um, using that, or sorry, I guess, navigating that discussion in a way so as not to damage that relationship. Um, and so uh, it, it can kind of be both a, a push and a pull um, to some extent, depending on the nature of the relationship and, and how the conversation goes. Um, but uh, yeah, so in, in summary, we're driven uh, to be accurate, to um, affirm ourselves or maintain a positive self-concept and to affiliate with others. And it's these three goals that drive the way we navigate political discussion. What I like about the leaning on social psych for this is it's a nice contrast to the way political scientists have often talked about political discussion is just like, well, this is how the, the public learns about politics. You just gather information from those who are near to you, from those who are more politically savvy than you. And this is what political discussion is. It's just a learning opportunity. And and this yeah. set of goals very nicely is like, um, Sure. <laughs> but like people have other concerns and, and those are going to guide whether they even find themselves uh, in these conversations at all. It also reminds me, I don't know how familiar this is like an old idea in attitudes that like opinions serve a handful of distinct functions. Like the reason we have opinions at all is because uh, we want certain things. Um, and so one of those is that attitudes or opinions can serve a knowledge goal, like it's just how we learn about stuff. Another is that attitudes or opinions can serve a value expressive uh, function, right? They allow us to express our values. And there are others that are like, 
ego defensive. They help us feel good about ourselves and others. I forget what the other one's called, but social something or other. They connect us to other people. And and so it kind of strikes me that like, oh, like those, this is this old idea about why we even form opinions at all. And so it makes sense that it also would be wrapped up in whether we're going to (laughs) kind of put our opinions on display for others um, because we're concerned about kind of these same core things. I don't know. That connection didn't strike me until five minutes ago. (laughs) So I just wanted to throw it out there in case that that meant anything to you. Yeah, no, thank you um, for doing that. And, and so I think, um, I think, I think that's a very, a very clear connection. I think is, you know, just, just like you said, you you wished you had uh, come across this book <laughs> earlier when you were doing your studies, right? I think it's one of those things where, um, I and I, I know this happens in in lots of disciplines, right? But it's sort of like you wish that the the fields would talk to each other more, um, because the I think that I think that's a really nice um, sort of parallel to uh, to what we're thinking about here. I do think that, um, and, and I and I totally, uh, of course, agree that. Um, the political science literature, or at least within the political discussion context, early on had had just been, you know, this is purely an instrumental exercise, right? And had thought about these these inputs and outputs, and we're these rational actors, and we can use political discussion to, you know, be vet, better voters and all of these things. And I don't think that our book is saying that this isn't accurate, um, because I think for some people that very well could be the case. Um, but I think our book is really trying to highlight that these instrumental goals are, first of all, not the only thing that people are thinking about, and um, that political discussion is so much more than that, and that it is the social experience, and that this social experience can structure the effectiveness of political discussion as an instrumental um, approach to trying to, you know, vote correctly, use our peers as an information shortcut, um, increased political engagement, all of these things. I think thinking about the social experience might lead to some cases in which it could actually backfire and go against the um, the intended, uh, or at least like what the instrumental expectation would be. Okay, so so these are those are the kind of main considerations behind whether people will engage in these kinds of things or not. But the other really important thing that this framework outlines is that political political discussion is not just political discussion, right? It's all the stuff that happens before the discussion and all the stuff that happens after the discussion. And so you outline four stages, right? Would you, you call them stages of, of this dynamic? Yep. So could you kind of walk us through what those four stages are? Absolutely. So we introduce what we call the 4D framework. So the 4D framework starts with detection. And at the detection stage, we um, argue that people, this is before a conversation begins, and people are trying to detect what what the political landscape is in the potential conversation. So they're trying to essentially sniff out whether people are Democrats or Republicans, or whether they agree or disagree with them on whatever issue might be coming up, or um, just generally trying to anticipate what the other person might think. and in particular, looking for disagreement. Now, they might be trying to detect other things like knowledge level or level of political engagement. But um, what we focus on here is mostly trying to detect disagreement. And that sort of comes in the form of trying to detect what people um, think about, about the topic at hand, or at least their partisan identity. Um, 
The second stage then is so sort of after you've sort of detected what's going on um, in the political landscape, you've determined whether uh, you think they're Republicans or Democrats, they'll agree or disagree with you. Um, you move on to the decision stage. Um, and at the decision stage, you actually make the, the choice of whether you're going to opt into the conversation or not. And here's where people will sort of weigh a variety of factors. They're gonna weigh how knowledgeable they feel about the topic and whether they feel that they are more or less knowledgeable than the other people in the conversation. They're again going to weigh um, disagreement, right? Where people are going to be more likely to opt out of the conversation if they detected disagreement in that detection stage. Um, they're going to weigh, uh, they might consider the topic, although we don't find a lot of evidence that the, the topic matters all that much, um, but they're ultimately going to be making this choice about whether to opt into the discussion or whether to walk away. Um, and now sometimes in our studies, we uh, to sort of capture this walking away um, uh, concept, we look at whether people will just be silent in the conversation. Um, and so they're just sort of listening, not contributing to the conversation. Um, so let's say that after detecting whether there's agreement or disagreement and then deciding to engage in the conversation, the third part of the 40 framework is discussion. And so at the discussion stage, um, this is where the conversation actually happens. But what we're interested in at this stage is um, there's still a variety of choices that are made. So people decide what to say and how to say it. Um, and so here we're particularly interested in um, the opinions that people are willing to reveal in the conversation. Um, so this is this again goes back to this idea of conformity. Do people actually express their true opinions, particularly in the face of disagreement or when people are more knowledgeable than them? Or are they going to pretend that they agree with the group? Are they going to be silent? Are they going to express an opinion that is actually stronger than what they um, what they think? Right. So they, they could what we call entrench. Right. They could. Um, like dig their heels in and express an opinion that is even stronger than than what they really think. Um, and uh, but there are also some more subtle things that people can do. Um, like they can they might express their real opinion, but they could hedge a little bit, right? They might say, "Well, yeah, I guess you could say I'm a Democrat," as opposed to coming out and saying strongly, "I am a Democrat. I am a Republican." They might sort of soften the way they deliver that um, that identity in a conversation. Um, and then after a discussion actually happens, we enter the fourth and final stage of the 4D framework, which is uh, determination. And at the determination stage, people reflect on the conversation experience that they had and think about whether they would be willing to have this conversation again, with whether they would be willing to engage about engage in conversation about politics or even non-political topics with these people again um and how do they how did this discussion or their political discussion experiences in general sort of shape the way that they view other people in the political system is at this point do they um you know do we start to see increases in social and affective polarization where people are willing to cut ties with people altogether as a consequence of political discussion? Or do they have such a positive experience that they're willing to do it again? 
or maybe it was a negative experience, but they're willing to sort of overlook that for the sake of trying to preserve a relationship with other people. Um, and so it's at this determination stage where people really reflect on both their future political discussion experiences and their relationships with um, with other people. Um, and so as, and then I guess that you could think of it as sort of a cycle where then at the end of this determination stage, you could get right back at detection. Um, the next time a political discussion opportunity arises and people might sort of choose their own adventure throughout this cycle differently each time, but they're still going, even, even if there are sort of general tendencies and how people behave, each lap around the cycle might be slightly different um, as people take more laps around the cycle or interact with different people, different topics. Each context and each conversation is so unique that it might look a little bit different each time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like the idea of the, the loop, too, because the other thing is like you've learned something from having this. You go, oh, either that went better or worse than I expected. <laughs> and now the next time around, right. I'm leaning on a different assumption, like a different prior when I make exactly. the decision whether to engage or not. OK, so so this for, these four stages all make sense. And you've raised a lot of questions and possibilities about each one. But I wonder if we could go back and revisit each of them <laughs> and and. Sure. Like tease a couple actual answers. Like, so if we go back to detection, how is it that people do this, right? So we're out there as little detectives with our magnifying glasses being like, all right, I'm going to suss out whether you're a liberal or a conservative. But short of just asking, like, who'd you vote for? Like, what are people doing to try and figure out this information? Yeah, great question. And so we actually asked people this exactly. We said, okay, if you couldn't ask someone directly, how would you go about guessing? Um, and so, uh, and then we, so we had people just tell us that they wrote out their responses. And then we worked with a team of undergraduate research assistants to code them into categories. And we find that people use a lot of different cues to try to detect um, political views. So some people would list things based on appearance. So they would say the clothes that they wear. Um, and some would give specific examples of, of what that means. I don't want to sort of perpetuate stereotypes <laughs> too much. Um, but they would say, you know, I could I could tell by the clothes they wear. Um, I could tell by uh, some people would list sort of demographic characteristics. I could tell by their age or their gender or their ethnicity. Um, some people would say things like, well, I would try to figure out what news they consumed, right? And so if they, um, you know, if they said that they get most of their news from Fox or MSNBC, that would tell me if they were conservative or liberal, respectively. Some people said they would turn to social media. And this is something that um, Jamie has found in, in her first book, Frenemies, was that people can use even pretty non-political content that people share on Facebook can be very informative for guessing people's um, political views. And so there were there were lots of different things. Some people even said the way they talk. And this, um, you know, we didn't we weren't able to sort of follow up with people on, on what they meant by that. Um, but there is some work suggesting that um, liberals and conservatives have sort of different speech patterns. Um, and so maybe that's what they meant, but it could have also been something like, you know, I, the, the way they talk about issues or, or something like that, because some also said, well, I would just ask their opinion on this topic. And, you know, if they were pro-life or pro-choice, that would tell me um, what I needed to know about their partisan identity. But um, so, so that exercise um, from the survey was really informative to us. 
Um, but we also sort of took this a step further and we we wanted to think of one of the simplest cues that could possibly be there. Um, and there's all this research coming out over the past um, 10, 15 years, sort of identifying these non-political, so to speak, preferences uh, between liberals and conservatives, right? So uh, anything from, you know, uh, uh, different preferences in what beer you drink or different preferences in, um, you know, if you're a dog person or a cat person or Trader Joe's versus Whole Foods versus, um, it, I, I don't know, Piggly Wiggly, I think <laughs> is one that, that came up often. Um, uh, and some of these more, you know, regional restaurant preferences, all of these types of sort of consumer um, preferences that tend to correlate with politics. Um, and so we were sort of looking at, at this literature and looking at um, this other really interesting paper um, by uh, Eric Oliver um, at the University of Chicago. They sort of find that liberals and conservatives have different name, first name preferences. So liberals tend to um, name their children, give their children names that have sort of softer um, sounds in them, um, whereas conservatives tend to choose names that have harsher sounds, stronger vowels, things like that. Um, and so we took names from, so we did a couple of things. So one study we did was we took names that this other paper had identified as um, sort of being liberal leaning names and conservative leaning names. We checked those names in. Um, uh, a voter registry database to see if, um, you know, to kind of match as best we could on like the number of registered voters that had this name. Um, so to see it, to make sure it was sort of balanced um, in that, that the names we were choosing were sort of equally um, favorable to registered Democrats and equally favorable to registered Republicans. And then we presented people with these vignettes and we said, okay, um, for example, the uh, one of the examples was sort of Liam, a more liberal sounding name versus Kent, a more conservative sounding name. And we said, OK, do you think Liam um, or Kent is more liberal, more conservative and ask them to sort of rate and guess the ideology of these people? Um, and we find that people do better than chance at assuming that Liam is liberal and Kent is conservative. Um, and we checked this with a bunch of different names and we did it sort of embedding the names within this story um, of, you know, you're at a coffee shop and, you know, you notice the, the name on the side of the cup is Liam or Kent, right? These sort of hiding it in, in these other social contexts as well. Um, and then we also did an experiment with some of these other non-political preferences, like being a cat person versus a dog person, having a messy desk versus a neat desk, things like that. And we just, again, asked people you know, a person with these characteristics, are you, do you think that they're more likely to be liberal or conservative? Um, and again, people guess at a rate that is better than chance. Um, they sort of match the stereotypical ideology to the person. Um, so all of that is to say, I think there are a lot of cues that people will look for, um, but it is often in sort of our, our non-political preferences that we sort of have these stereotypes now ingrained um, in us, uh, particularly with the growth of um, social and uh, and affective polarization, um, it is it, it. You know, I I can't say this with certainty because we didn't you know do the study at multiple points in time. But I would imagine that this task is in some ways becoming easier um, 
as people as sort of we've seen this um, increase in social polarization. Hmm. I, I forget. Have, have, did any of these studies fuse uh, stage one and two? So, like, is it the case that liberals are actually more willing, more likely to opt out of talking to Kent than they are opting out of talking to Liam? Yes. So we, um, I'm not sure if we report this in the book or in the appendix, but we did um, ask that and that, and that is the case. So the, the effects aren't huge because most people just don't want to have the conversation. Um, but, um, but yeah, so we, we do, we do find that, but I do think that um, if I remember correctly, um, it's a little bit thorny because sometimes we ask people first to guess the ideology and then report how, I think we asked how comfortable would you be having the conversation with this person? And so it's a little tough there to gauge, you know, are they just anchoring on the fact that they just said that they thought this person was liberal and therefore we're basically like forcing them to go through detection. Whereas if we just gave them the name, maybe they're going to kind of skip that and give a more middle of the road response. Um, we could have randomized the order to look into that more carefully. Um, but yes, we, we do find that, um, you know, liberals reported being less comfortable having a conversation with Kent and conservatives reported feeling less comfortable having the conversation with Liam. Um, yes, that, that, so that, that's my recollection of what we found, but I, I'm not, I don't remember if we reported that in the book. That might just be a little extra treat. I appreciate the treat. <laughs> the nice thing about the, the the name one, though, too, is like there's no other reason. Because if you do dog person, cat person, you go, well, I might just not want to talk to you because I don't like to talk to cat people or whatever. Um, sure. But like I should have no special aversion to the name Kent or Liam <laughs> other than what I'm inferring about you from that information right and what else am i gonna i mean maybe i infer that you're a cat person or a dog person specifically but probably uh it's a it's more general political thing nevertheless I, maybe this isn't a clarification that has to be made but all of these examples are ones in which you start from cues that you know do reliably signal politics but my guess is that that's not actually that important it's whatever whatever this is that makes you think i'm liberal or conservative that's going to be the thing that matters. It doesn't really matter that you're right or wrong or that you're using a cue that's diagnostic right. or non-diagnostic. It's just the fact that something got you to the perception that these are my politics. Is Does that ring true or does accuracy actually play a role? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think in some ways, if you're thinking about, you know, just that person's trip through the cycle, um, I, I guess in that sense, accuracy doesn't necessarily matter if that's what's shaping um, their decision to engage and then their decision over, you know, what they choose to reveal and so on and so forth. However, there could be consequences for being wrong, right? And and I can think about this in, in two ways. So one could be, say, I uh, am trying to detect whether I think you and I are going to agree on a topic and whatever cue I'm using, say, you know, oh, you have glasses, therefore I think you're going to, you know, disagree with me on this issue. Um, so I'm going to opt out of the conversation altogether. But if really, if I, if we would have agreed and we could have had a really meaningful conversation about whatever policy topic, my incorrect assumption about your um, political preferences based on a bogus cue, essentially, um, 
could have led me to sort of miss out on a potentially important conversation. And then on the other hand, if I thought you and I saw eye to eye, um, and then I opt into this conversation, and then suddenly I realize that we disagree, and then now I'm stuck here, and now <laughs> I'm sitting here like, uh-oh, I called this one wrong. Now I have to figure out what to do. Now I might conform. Now I might try to be silent and try to sort of dig myself out of this hole that I got into because I incorrectly inferred um, your your political views. Um, and now another way in which this accuracy could matter um, is, and this actually speaks to to my other book, is sort of if we are going to think about these the instrumental, the potential instrumental benefits of political discussion, in particular for um, for the ability to use conversation to learn about politics. Um, there's a long line of research to suggest that you should be having conversations with people who know more than you do and are from the same party as you, so that you can avoid being misled. And so, if I don't, if if I incorrectly assume that you and I have the same interests and that you and I both agree on politics and then I listen to what you say, but really you're sort of giving me bad advice or at least advice that's bad for me um, because we actually disagree with each other, I could end up sort of updating my preferences sort of in the quote unquote wrong direction or in a direction that um, doesn't, that is not consistent with my priors. And I think that this, this speaks to, again, not to get too much into the other project, um, but the way in which conversations can sort of um, change uh, the information that gets communicated from sort of from the news to then the way we talk about it in the conversation. Um, this information distortion is essentially more problematic when it flows between co-partisans. So on the one hand, it can help people learn, um, which is a good thing, but it can also lead people to have more extreme policy preferences. And, and so I think in this sense, that accuracy matters so that people can sort of appropriately discount um, and contextualize the information that's being shared with them. Hmm. So this is a nice actual transition into the discussion part of things. So like when we're actually having these discussions, right, these are all the sorts of things that can happen, right? Like now, my assumptions are being maybe challenged or supported. Uh, things are going well or they're going poorly. And so I'm curious if you could give us a sense of like, how do these particularly conversations with people we disagree with, how do those go? Because uh, kind of what I had mentioned that I, I'm interested in when our lay theories butt up against the reality. I've always been kind of skeptical that our assumptions that talking to people we disagree with is necessarily going to be a disaster. Right? Like, it seems like, I don't know, maybe my view of the world is like, people are people, and if you just actually talk to them, it's probably going to be fine. Like, the monster you've envisioned is probably not the reality. But I, you've sort of summarized, for me, some of the more compelling evidence that this can be uncomfortable, like viscerally unpleasant to people. And so like, what's the story here? Like, is it is it a innocuous thing to talk politics with someone you disagree with? Or are there actual kind of negative consequences or the kind of negative experiences that go with it? Great question. So, um, so I, I do think it depends. Um, and I think that there, I think you're right that perhaps on average, um, conversations are not you know, these screaming matches where people are, you know, their hearts are always racing and they're, and they're sweating and they're, 
you know, ready to go cry in the corner and they're, you know, throwing their turkey out the window <laughs> as they leave Thanksgiving dinner early, right? Um, so these, these situations can happen. Um, but I think, you know, I think more, it is more common that these conversations with people who disagree can be civil. Um, and this is something that um, my my colleague, Erin Rossiter, has found in, um, she's done a lot of sort of um, inter-party contact experiments, having Republicans and Democrats come together um, and have an online um, conversation. Um, and what she finds in sort of reading the con the transcripts of these conversations is that they're actually quite civil, and I think much more civil than than what you might expect. Um, but I think this civility doesn't necessarily mean that people weren't uh, or that people were comfortable. Um, and so we sort of shed some light on this um, using the lab experiments. And so we wanted to actually uh, t test whether people felt uncomfortable. Um, and so we'd made them do a totally natural thing and just hooked them up to a bunch of equipment <laughs> to measure how sweaty their palms got and how fast their hearts raced. Um, but so, so we used a, a sample of undergrads recruited from uh, mostly political science courses. Um, so this is a group who's super interested and knowledgeable about politics, um, probably has political discussions more often than the um, average American, um, but we brought them into the lab nonetheless. And we, um, we, in our first study, you know, we had them watch videos of people discussing politics or non-political topics in contentious ways. And then at the end of sort of viewing this, we said, okay, now another participant is going to join you um, and you're going to discuss politics. And then we said, okay, and this is what, and this is some information about the person you're going to talk with and said whether they were going to agree or disagree with them. And then we said, okay, and by the way, these are the three topics that you're going to discuss. And what we find is that at this moment of saying, okay, you're going to have to discuss politics, we see this spike in heart rate. Um, and now this is, it's not a huge spike in heart rate for, for most respondents, the right? The turkey's so, still on the table. Um, but yes, the turkey is still on the table, but people are sort of alarmed a little bit, right? It's this anticipation of a discussion. You could, in and in, in sort of um, getting ready for like the uncertainty of, of not knowing what's coming next. Um, and so we do see this increase in physiological response. Um, and now, it, so we sort of interpret this as, you know, people being um, potentially uncomfortable. We know that increase in heart rate can be associated with um, anxiety uh, and, and a lot of these more negative emotions. Um, but to be fully transparent, it also could be the case that they were super excited about the possibility to talk about politics. That would register the same um, response with the, the measurement that we have. So it could be that they were like, yes, I get to discuss politics. I'm so excited. Let's do this. Bring this participant in. Let's chat. That would show the same increase in heart rate. Um, but I think that we see this pattern um, sort of correlating more with self-reported negative emotions than positive emotions. Um, and we see um, that this varies sort of depending on whether the person agreed or disagreed. We, we sort of tend more toward the story that this is capturing some level of discomfort, um, but, but we can't know for sure. And so we, we did follow up um, this just this anticipation study 
um, where we did another study where people actually had the conversation with another person um, and we measured their physiological reactions throughout the course of the discussion. Um, and we see that when people are in um, conversations with some kind of disagreement, we see greater increases um, in heart rate and sweaty palms. Um, and so I think that people, I think that there is at least some degree of at least physiological discomfort in um, conversations with people who disagree. Um, that's not to say that the conversations can't be civil, right? And none of our studies did were students throwing turkey, right? <laughs> we didn't give them turkey, I guess. And maybe that can be the next iteration. That's the key limitation um, that you need to note in the paper. Yes, that's the key limitation noted in, <laughs> in the study is that we did not give them turkey to throw. Um, but, uh, you know, none of the conversations were, were particularly um, heated or anything like that. They were all very calm, um, at least in, in what was uh, said, um, but in what people felt, that wasn't necessarily the case. And um, so I think, I, I just think it really depends. And, and we can also look at too, um, I think we give more of these examples in the, um, the both the determination chapter and, and some in the discussion chapters where we asked people to just sort of describe discussion experiences that they had. And I mean, there are definitely some of these colorful experiences where people described feeling anxious they people who were not in our lab study described that they felt sweaty and uncomfortable that their hearts were racing and so you know are these people in the minority probably um but i think that some that that there are but it but it's not such a small group of people that are having these uncomfortable experiences um discussing politics that you know, I think some people sort of um, have discussion with people who disagree despite this discomfort. Um, but to say that it isn't there, I don't think is an accurate portrayal. It, it may also be, I mean, it's not that these folks are saying that they regularly feel like totally sure. emotionally distraught during these things. But you go, you know, you, a, one lab study is one conversation. But if I get to reflect on all the conversations I've ever had, there might be a couple where I was like just brimming and uh, couldn't couldn't hold it in, and so it's possible that that right. it's sort of a proof of concept. Like, yeah, these things can really spin out of control, but maybe mm -hmm. you know, you say like kind of the typical way that they go is they feel a little uncomfortable, but we can manage it maybe better than we anticipate. Yeah, and I think some of this is you know, so we in. Um, uh, chapter nine, I think, of the book, um, we look at individual differences in, in personality and demographics and a bunch of other characteristics. Um, but we specifically look at uh, social anxiety, um, conflict avoidance, and willingness to self-censor to see if these personality characteristics sort of um, are correlated with um, decisions that are made throughout the framework. And and so I think, you know, we could think about these and you could think of a ton of other potential personality um, characteristics that might shape whether people are um, sort of more or less sensitive to these experiences. And you could one thing that I think um, was was kind of a challenge for us in thinking about even this this analysis of using sort of personality traits to explain a choice at any given point um, or in any given moment. Uh, one of the challenges is that you know it could be the case that people who are are really socially anxious. Um, and nor and sort of maybe their first couple of political discussion experiences 
Um, they have these strong aversive reactions. Um, but if that then shapes the choices that they make on subsequent potential political discussions, it could be the case that they've basically sort of developed their their strategy, right? They know how to navigate the situation so that they feel more comfortable. And so what we're then able to measure is sort of their um, their preferred strategy that they've rehearsed, essentially, if, if that kind of makes sense, where um, I guess it's just, uh, it it's sometimes hard to, to think about whether these are sort of the behaviors that we have um, sort of conditioned um, ourselves to um, have, like maybe we just always conform because that's how we make it through the conversation. And so we're comfortable now because we know, okay, it's a political discussion with this person, I'm just gonna go along with what they say, right? And so I think um, sort of break, developing these habits that are basically our defense mechanisms to make it through a conversation, I think there could be a lot of that at play that then makes this also sort of more difficult to study. Okay, so uh, we uh, our palms are sweaty. <laughs> We've engaged in a, in a conversation, uh, and and I, I I wish I would have had it up for you. Have this beautiful line where it's like the discussion does or what is it? The end of the discussion is only the beginning of the consequences of that discussion. So, what mm -hmm. are the kinds of things that we ought to care about that come that that occur afterward? Like, what are the ramifications of these conversations? Sure. Um, so I think we can think about them in uh, in two broad categories. So when we think about determination, we can think about um, the sort of political behavior, political engagement consequences, and we can think about the social ramifications. On the political engagement side, we can think about things like, are you willing to discuss politics again with anyone? And again, if we think about there being at least some instrumental benefits to having political discussion, then we should really care about whether people are willing to engage in political discussion again in the future. Um, and so that is kind of like the, the first bucket, right? Um, but then the second bucket, I think, is thinking about ramifications for the social relationships. So um, would you be willing to discuss politics again with these people? Would you be willing to sit by these people at lunch? Would you be willing to, um, uh, you know, water this, these people, like water their plants while they were out of town, right? And do these other sort of, so have these other social experiences with these people? Or was the political discussion so um, powerful in a negative way that it leads you to uh, want to cut ties socially with, with that person or with the people in the group. Um, and we find some evidence for both. And I think there are sort of a glass half empty and a glass half full way to kind of interpret the results that we find. So on the one hand, um, we do find that people were, um, less willing to, uh, report that, I guess this is in a vignette experiment. So they're kind of projecting what they would do onto a character. Um, but they're saying, you know, after this political discussion, when people were faced with disagreement, they thought they would be less willing to sit by these people again at work. They would be less willing to have a political discussion in the future compared to when that discussion um, was agreeable. So essentially suggesting that disagreement can lead people to be less likely to engage in discussion in the future 
and less likely to engage socially with these people in the future. However, it is less likely when it's um, when the conversation was disagreeable than when it was agreeable, but it was still viewed as sort of overall at least somewhat likely. So it's not the case that people are saying, oh no, they would never do this again. Again, on average, some people gave that response. Um, but so you could sort of interpret this as, oh, political discussion and that is disagreeable causes people to be less likely to do this again in the future, causes them to be less likely to engage with people in the future. And that's true, but only relative to um, agreeable discussions. Overall, people are still saying like, yeah, maybe they would do that. Um, and so I think that's kind of a, a glass half empty, glass half full interpretation of this. Um, but that said, we, we also, um, you know, asked people just sort of descriptively, not, we just asked them, have you ever um, uh, cut tie? Have you ever distanced yourself socially from a friend because of politics? And we find that about a quarter of Americans say yes. Um, and this again was, this data was collected in 2016, 2017. Um, you could imagine that that number is probably <laughs> higher now. Um, and, uh, and so I think, you know, we, and we have this plot in the book where we look at all these different, um, ways in which you could distance yourself, um, from another person. Also, this is before social distancing meant something right. very different. We actually had to rewrite a huge part of the book because we were like, oh boy, social distance it, it, means something really different now. It's really annoying because that construct of social distance goes back a long way. And now all of a sudden you're like, well, gosh, now to, <laughs> or what do we yeah. call it now? Exactly. Yeah. We had to <laughs> rewrite a huge chunk of the book because of that. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And so, you know, it's anything from there will, um, you know, we stopped talking politics, but we would still talk about other things to, we stopped talking about everything altogether. We stopped letting our kids play together, um, defriended them on Facebook or hid them on other social media platforms. So we see there are lots of different ways in which people are at least reporting that they are cutting ties with people. But again, even that, you know, 25% of or roughly 25% of Americans saying that they um, were uh, uh, had cut ties because of politics, that still means that the vast majority of Americans have not. And so I think that's sort of a, a, an important um, piece to keep in mind is that, yes, I think there is reason to be concerned that for some people, politics has become so divisive and political discussion in particular plays an important role in the way that politics is um, kind of affecting their their social relationships. But for most people in the United States, that's just not what's going on. Um, and so I think that's important to keep in mind is sort of who are we talking about um, and um, sort of what is the, the scope um, of the potential problem. Great. So to pull all these threads together, uh, the one thing I, I wanted to get your take on is there's certainly been this movement to like, oh, we can address polarization if we could just get people to talk to each other. If we could just get people to see eye to eye, we'd realize blah, 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 whatever the story is. Um, but you've outlined like a really complex <laughs> dynamic that underlies these kinds of discussions. And so from your vantage point, having sifted through all of this, run these studies, looked at the data, collected all this stuff together, 
How viable a strategy would you say it is to do what these kinds of nonprofits are trying to encourage people to do, to just bring people together, encourage people to have conversations with those that they disagree with? Yeah. So I, first of all, I, I really admire the work that a lot of these organizations are doing. And I think that, um, you know, there's, it's not it's not good that we're finding that people are so uncomfortable having political conversations. And um, and so I think that even if this work sort of um, helps people feel more comfortable discussing politics, which I know is not is not the fundamental goal of of these organizations. Um, I think if that is even just another sort of positive externality of their interventions, I think that is something worth um, being excited about. Um, that said, I, I do think that um, one of the challenges in these approaches to saying, you know, we just need to bring people together. I think the challenge is that the people who are willing to come together are just fundamentally different from the people who are not. And I think um, so the type of person who is willing to say, yeah, I'd have a conversation with someone from the other side um, is maybe more likely already to be to they're, they're of course already open to that conversation um but they might be more likely to changing their minds they might have softer attitudes to begin with um and the people who won't even come to the table to have the conversation um i think are you know potentially the ones who could stand to benefit the most um so i uh you know i i buy the the experimental results that show that you know, if you randomly assign some people to a heterogeneous conversation and other people to a homogenous conversation or no conversation, that you do see that this interparty contact can reduce affective polarization. Um, I, I believe those studies, they, they've been um, very, uh, for the most part, very well designed and rigorously analyzed, all of these things. Um, and some of them have been done in partnership with a lot of these organizations. But I do think that we need to think more carefully about recruitment and more carefully about selection. Um, and so not to um, tease a little bit too much um, here on this, but uh, um, my, my colleague Aaron Rossiter and I have worked on this a little bit where we're fielding um, a, we just finished fielding an experiment where we um, basically uh, randomly assigned people to either choose uh, their treatment. So choose whether they want an agreeable discussion, a disagreeable discussion, or no discussion, or forced exposure. So the more traditional model. Um, and then that will allow us to sort of at least have some leverage on whether, on how much of the treatment effects that other studies have found are sort of um, due to this forced exposure design or how much selection um, uh, could be at play. Um, but and so so I think that studies like what what Aaron and I are working on um, can help shed light on this. But I think even more so um, that that we're not getting at in this study because it is still a study. Um, you know, I still I just I I have a hard time thinking about the the connection between these um, these large scale efforts to bring people together in conversation and how that then maps on to the organic conversations we have in our daily lives. Um, and it's not to say that I don't have any hope, uh, <laughs> but I just think, um, I, I think it's just, I think it's hard to to think about this because of the selection and because it is just, it, it's hard to think about 
you know, these, these, con these moderated conversations? How do, how do you go from a heavily moderated conversation with rules and norms of civility to then just, you know, you're trapped in, on an airplane with someone who's <laughs> just talking your ear off and you can't escape, but you have to have this conversation. Is that kind of exposure to the other side going to be enough to, hmm. to reduce affective polarization? Um, I, I don't know. So I just think that um, I would love to see more efforts in, in this context, um, can, uh, having a, a deeper consideration for the, the social context, um, because I think there is hope, but I think we have to think about it um, uh, sort of at, at all of these stages of the 4D framework um, and in thinking about what that experience looks like in the real world as opposed to in, um, in the context of the intervention. That is great. That's super helpful. And uh, I, I would say we're out of time. So I'm just going to say thanks so much for <laughs> taking the time to talk about all this stuff. Obviously, people should should do the work and uh, go deeper into this. I mean, th you, we've scratched the surface of what's uh, in the book. And yeah, th thanks for talking about it. Yeah, thank you so much um, for, for inviting me to, to talk about the book. Happy to follow up if you have any other questions. I'm sorry I rambled on too long. Uh, but otherwise, um, thank you so much and um, look forward to listening to more of your um, more of your podcast. That'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thank you so much to Taylor Carlson for taking the time to talk about her work. The book we were talking about again is called What Goes Without Saying, Navigating Political Discussion in America. You can find out more about Taylor and her work by clicking a link to her website in the show notes. For more about this show, just point your cute little web browser to opinionsciencepodcast.com. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you like to listen to it. Follow the show on social media. Listen, I'm on Blue Sky now, okay? For the 11th time, everyone's saying Twitter is going down, so fine. I'll be more deliberate about Blue Skying instead of posting other places. You know where you won't find me? Mastodon. I never liked that place. <laughs> but just look for me on social media. For now, Twitter and Blue Sky are where I'm the most sciencey in my social media-ing. Okie doke. That's all for now. See you in a couple weeks for more Opinion Science. Bye-bye.